All right, so we are in the book of Acts. This is the book of action. It's what happens in the early church right after Jesus gives this charge to his followers. And he says, now that you know who the true king is, go and tell all the nations of the earth. Make disciples of all people. Spread the good news of the king. And I'll go and prepare a place for you and then I'm coming back to firmly establish my kingdom. That's the chapter in history that we are living in right now. The book of Acts is so action-packed because this is us, okay? We're reading about things that happened in the first century that are still rippling out and affecting our lives today and our calling and mission. As I look around the room here, I see many of you who I know have served in the military, served in various branches of the armed forces, And you know what mission is all about. Mission is what helps you to get along with that person that you're stuck with that you wouldn't really get along with in real life, right? But because you're wearing the same uniform and you have the same mission, you press on and you persevere because the mission is more important than personality differences. And, you know, maybe maybe some of, I've, I've wondered what is it like to be in the military today trying to lead millennials who have been kind of, in my opinion, not to, bash millennials, those of you that are in that category, too much. But, you know, there is this kind of coddling and, and caring for, uh, you know, the, the special snowflake in your home there, that, that millennial that you've got. What does a drill sergeant do when all these special snowflakes show up, right? They push them to mission and they get them committed to a common goal and pursuing that together. And all of a sudden, your preferences and your desires and your emotions are pretty insignificant in light of that mission that you have. Mission helps you to press on and to endure and to endure hardship and still continue on. And that is really what we're finding in the book of Acts as we see these ups and downs on the mission that God has given to the church going from to one town where they see God work and there's people that are healed and there are those who join them and believe in Jesus and find hope and forgiveness of sins. And then there's uh, opposition that comes and there's mobs that are stirred up and there's stonings that occur. And so those ups and downs, how do you continue day by day to serve King Jesus? You stick to mission. The mission of making him known. And Jesus promised that that's not just something that we work up within us, just a will to pursue that mission, but he gives us the power that we need to fulfill the mission. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's the mission. So we've seen now as we're, as we're coming to Acts 17, the, the portion that we're really going to focus on is when Paul arrives in this city of Athens. And that's going to be an interesting part of the story, but let's, let's look at his missionary journey. This is Paul's second missionary journey that's brought him to this uh, place where we're going to learn some lessons on how do we approach the culture that we live in, the context in which God has placed us. In Acts 15, at the beginning of this second missionary journey, there was the Jerusalem Council. Pastor Mark preached on that in June. That's where the early church was trying to work out, figure out how do we get along with one another. We, we who come from a Jewish background and then others over here there's a chord there, who come from a a Gentile background, how do we work together towards the kingdom? Because we Jewish believers are thinking that those guys need to go through all the Jewish hoops that we did, celebrating special days and feasts and circumcision and all those Jewish characteristics, learning their Old Testaments well. And the Gentiles are over here saying, is all of that necessary or is Jesus enough? And so the Jerusalem Council convenes to hash this out and they pray and they submit to God's Spirit leading them and they come up with some resolutions and say Gentile mission is important. Let's spread the good news. Let's not impose all of the requirements on the Gentiles that are coming to Jesus and yet let's request that the Gentiles do a couple of things just to avoid offending their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And then in in chapter 16, Paul meets this young man, Timothy, and that story unfolds throughout the rest of the New Testament, who becomes a pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul meets Timothy there in Lystra. Uh, There's many uh, occasions of God's Spirit leading Paul at each step of his journey. From Lystra, he has a, a dream of a man in Macedonia saying, come on over to Macedonia. And so he and Silas set out in that direction. They spent some time in a jail in Philippi. 
And at each point along the way, God is working, delivering them in a dramatic fashion from that Philippian jail. And now we get to chapter 17 as Paul uh, and Silas arrive at the city of Thessalonica. Let's read here in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, the Messiah, the King. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, Paul and Silas, They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. There's a lot going on there in Thessalonica. We're seeing that pattern that we've seen throughout the book of Acts of the highs and the lows along the mission. Having that mission mindset that says we're going to endure whether it's a good day and people are being receptive to the good news of Jesus or whether it's a bad day and there's a mob and there's bribery and extortion and there's being dragged out and there's a power play from the governing authorities of the land, we're going to press on because the mission is greater than my personal comfort, my satisfaction, my emotions today. There's that mission mindset that prevails. We see the the sermon that Paul is preaching here in Thessalonica. It's a simple message. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Jesus is the King. Very simple gospel message. Not a lot of philosophical background, not a lot of extra fluff added on. A very simple, clear, direct message, and yet one that incites emotion in the ears of the hearers. They, they make the connection. When you claim that Jesus is King, you're also making a subversive claim against any other kingdom, any other ruler, any other government, any other allegiances, and they get it. And that's, that's a very accusation that now the Jews level against Jason and his household. Jason is hosting some subversive revolutionaries who are going against Caesar as king, claiming that Jesus is king. And it, it raises the emotions of the hearers that day. We're going to take communion together at the end of the service. And communion is an awesome time of remembering what Jesus did, looking back, looking inside, what he's done for you and I to forgive us of our sins, to, to cleanse us, to free us from the wrath of God, the judgment that's coming, to call us to repentance, to give us new life, not just someday out in the future, but life that's eternal that begins today. And that's the forward-looking part of communion, that we look forward to the return of our king when there's no more sorrow, there's no more pain, when all things are set right. And yet there's an element of communion that is also revolutionary, that as we remember the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord, we're proclaiming him as the king. We're saying our primary allegiance is to this king, Jesus not to any earthly authority, not to any political party, not any national affiliation. We pledge allegiance to the one true king. And that's a message that will rub some people of our culture the wrong way. And they'll say, wait a minute, can't we have Caesar and Jesus? No, it's it's a choice. Choose you this day whom you will serve. And there's a commitment to follow King Jesus that will get some people a bit offended as we see here as happened in Thessalonica. 
It's a dangerous message to proclaim. I love the accusation that's brought against Jason. I I hope that this is an accusation that you hear against yourselves. Actually, it's brought against Paul and Silas. But as Jason has hosted them, listen to what those those Jewish uh, leaders say now to the city authorities. These men who have turned the world upside down, may that be said of each man and woman, each teenager gathered here today. You're one of those people who are turning the world upside down. Yep. This is a kingdom where everything is inverted and upside down, where the king gets down on his hands and knees to wash the feet of his followers, where he comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then he tells us, you've seen what I've done? Go and do the same. It's a kingdom where the least are greatest, And the first are last and the last are first. Everything is flipped upside down in this kingdom. And they hit the nail on the head when they say these people are turning the world upside down. Take that mission mindset that allows us to take the risks that are required to spread the good news of King Jesus. Well, thankfully, the ministry in Thessalonica comes to an end and they're able to move on to a new city where there's greater receptivity, the city of Berea. Verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Again, in light of what's happening there in Thessalonica, the danger, the opposition, they're quietly taken away and sent to the city of Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Have you noticed a pattern? When Paul arrives in a new city, his ministry begins in the synagogue. He goes to those who have some background information and knowledge that will be helpful in bringing them to the good news of Jesus. So in the synagogue, he is encountering creational monotheists. Okay, two parts of that. First of all, these are people who believe that there is one God. They're monotheists. But not just any one God, the creator of heaven and earth. So he he begins with this common ground. In the synagogue, he's encountering people who believe there is one God. He's the maker of heaven and earth. And he has revealed himself throughout history and in his word, the Old Testament. So he'll go to the synagogue. I think it was there in Thessalonica, one of, these, one of these cities, he was there three consecutive Sabbaths. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, spacing out which one it is. But there's one of the cities that he's in here in chapter 17, three weeks in a row, on the Sabbath, he's, he's proclaiming the good news uh, tied into the Old Testament to people who would have that common knowledge, that common information. And so now he arrives in Berea, and as has been his custom, he begins in the synagogue. Eventually, he'll end up in the marketplace as well because there are people who don't have that shared background, that knowledge, that common worldview, and they come from paganism. They believe in a lot of different gods, or they're confused, or they're walking aimlessly for, through life, or maybe they're intrigued by philosophical ideas. And he's got a good news gospel presentation of Jesus that fits that mindset as well. But he begins in the synagogue. So here in Berea, he arrived, Paul and Silas both, and went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, listen to this verse, 11. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I pray that this verse be true of you as well that when you sit in Grandview High School Auditorium on a Sunday morning, you don't just soak it in like a sponge and assume that the pastor is rightly dividing the word of truth, but that you be like the Bereans. You go, does this guy know what he's talking about? Is this just some cockamamie idea from Gilboy's brain? Or is this true to God's word? Because whatever creative idea or way of expressing things that I have is worth nothing. But God's revelation of himself is what will really transform your life and our world. And so be like the Bereans. Eagerly study God's word. Hopefully when we gather together on a Sunday morning and read Acts chapter 17 and dig into that a little bit, it's just enough to whet your appetite so that you open God's word every day 
in the week to come. And you experience personally that transformation as God's spirit through his word changes your heart and mind and your life. And you'll be one of those people that turns the world upside down. And so as these Bereans were diligently studying God's word daily, listening in a way that gave them ears to hear and hearts that could be changed. Listen to what happened in verse 12. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And again, that word but, as we saw in Thessalonica, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating, stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. That mission mindset, they expected both opposition and receptivity. They didn't know of the crowds gathered in the synagogue, which of these is God's softening hearts? Which of these individuals here in the synagogue come with a soft heart where the seed of God's word is going to take root and sprout? and bring forth fruit and life. And which ones are here to agitate, to oppose, to reject? That's how we go through life. We just faithfully proclaim King Jesus in word and deed and then leave the results up to him. That mission mindset says we're we're called to scatter the seeds of good news. We're not the ones that bring the increase. Even in your garden, You can't do anything to force that seed to do its thing. That's a miracle of God. Sometimes I wonder why miraculously this tomato plant grows, this one over here died. I'm watering them both the same. I I don't get it. But there's a God who brings forth a harvest, and so we faithfully continue that work, that mission mindset that presses on, that endures, there's resilience. If God calls you to remain, you remain. If he calls you to depart, you depart. Even if there's opposition from the Jews from Thessalonica right here in Berea, Timothy and Silas, hang out here and do some more ministry. Face opposition for a while. A couple verses later, you get to come along to Athens as well. But there's that faithfulness to press on with that mission mindset. Let's turn now as, as we get to the, the end of chapter 17. We find out the technique that Paul uses as he approached Athens, a very different city from the two that we've seen here in the early part of chapter 17. Paul now in Athens, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Picture in your mind, this, this city of Athens, we're going to find out a little bit more about Athens as we get to the end of chapter 17. It's the thought center of the Roman Empire. The Athenians are known for their, their ability to, to consider all kinds of ideas, philosophies. It's, it's the crossroads that's connecting the Roman Empire. You're getting ideas from here, there, and everywhere. People are fascinated with learning, discovering new novel ideas. And Paul is here in Athens just trying to get a feel for this culture. Remember, he's moving throughout Asia Minor from city to city on this journey as God leads him and calls him, sometimes by his spirit, sometimes through a vision of a Macedonian dream saying, come over here. Sometimes because of persecution, he's driven to a new place. At every step along the way, God is the one leading him. But he's on this adventure of discovering how do you minister effectively in this new context? So now he's in Athens. He's walking the streets of Athens. And his spirit is provoked within him. Do you know what that's like? Have you ever seen or observed something in culture that just nauseated you? It sickened you? Could be in our culture. Could be in a different part of the world that you've traveled. Human trafficking. Prostitution. Addiction. Abuse of power. Some aspect of culture that you go, this just should not be so. And there's a sense in which Paul has one ear turned toward the culture 
in which he finds himself, the culture to which God has led him and called him. And as he's listening to that culture, there's something within him that's disturbed and troubled. Specifically, this city is full of idols. What's an idol? An idol is any created thing that you worship. There there is only one appropriate direction that our worship should and must go, and it's to the Creator. There is a Creator. He created all things. And He should be worshipped because He's glorious. He has existed forever. He knows no end. He's the maker of all things. And we need to see ourselves in proper perspective. We are created. Hey, we got some good-looking teenagers walking in here. All right, welcome back. Good to see you guys. They don't even smell too bad. I'm matching t-shirts. <laughs> so we're in Acts 17, verse 16. We are among the created things. We need to know the distinction between the creator and the creature. And the, the Athenians had lost sight of that. They're looking at things that are created and they're beginning to worship them. Oh, look at this, this sculpture. It, it's so beautiful. It's so ornate. Let's worship it. Look at this stone. It's so powerful and strong and precious. Let's worship it. They're, they're worshiping many things that are not the creator. When I, when I um, was younger and I saw the word idol, I, in the New Testament, I'd kind of glaze over that. Go, you know, we, we don't do idols anymore. Like, I don't know anybody who's got a little statue in their house that they bow down and worship. Maybe that Chinese buffet where there's that you know, little orange and some incense burning as you walk in. That's the only example of, of an idol that I've seen. But then as I've, I've started to look at what an idol actually is, I realize how idolatrous we are. Do we worship any created things? Do you ever see anybody around town that can't even look up at the stoplight when it turns green? can't even look at the other humans around them on public transportation or in a waiting room because they're so fascinated with some created thing or other humans, worshiping other humans, their praise, their approval, recognition. Those are all created things. Those are all examples of modern-day idols. Paul's walking through the city of Athens and his heart is grieved. It's provoked with, his spirit is provoked within him because he sees a city full of idols. So what's he do? Verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there, both places, both contexts. He's in the, in the synagogue where there are some Jewish people who have some common shared history. They believe in a, a creator God, one God. And then out in the marketplace with all these different ideal, ideas, people who have an idolatrous mindset that are worshiping many different gods. And in both places, he's reasoning and sharing and discussing. He's got an ear to God's word as well. So one ear is directed out to the culture. What's going on out out here in the culture? And as he listens in Athens, his stomach is turning because he sees how disgusting and vile this pursuit of many different false gods and, and idols is. But at the the same time, Paul has an ear to God's word. And he knows who his maker is. He knows who his Lord is. He knows who the king is. And because he's got one ear pointed in each direction, he's out there in the synagogues and in the marketplace with a mission. How can I connect this hearer with the truth that will set them free? That's his mission. And he's reasoning and he's conversing. He's using both ears and his mouth in the proclamation of good news. It's not just a, a set template of this is just the, this is my go-to. Whether I'm in Athens, Thessalonica, Berea, whether I'm in a synagogue or in the marketplace, this is my canned way of presenting Jesus. No, he's listening to the culture while listening to God's spirit, his word, looking to his Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is giving him the timing and the opportunities and the words that he needs in each context to make Jesus known. Reasoning in both places. Now in verse 18, we we begin to hear 
some of the response as Paul is making these truth claims about Jesus the King. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. These are new concepts for these pagans. Okay, it's, it's from a different part of the Roman Empire. They haven't heard about Jesus. But what's his sermon here in Athens? Jesus and the resurrection. It's not real complicated. He's presenting King Jesus, the Son of God, crucified and risen. What's the big deal about resurrection? Apart from resurrection, Jesus is just another one in a long line of mercenaries, revolutionaries that threaten the Roman Empire. It's the resurrection that changes everything. It's the resurrection that proves that all that Jesus said and did is true. Dead people don't just get up from the grave. But as God raised Jesus from the dead, that's where our hope lies. This was a Jewish expectation, resurrection at the end of time. And now all of a sudden, right in the middle of history, resurrection is happening. New life is beginning. And Paul is proclaiming Jesus and resurrection right now, today, in Athens. And there's a mixed response. Some are saying, well, he's just a babbler. He's a windbag. Others are saying, well, it's some foreign religion that he's perpetuating. And so they bring him now in verse 19 to the Areopagus. Areopagus, not quite sure what that is. It is a location in Athens. It's a rocky outcropping, Mars Hill. It's also a place where there were trials held, especially trials that were religious in nature. So we're not quite sure if this is a location or a group of people that he's brought before if he's on trial. But it's one of those. So it's in Athens. It's this location. It's a prominent location. Paul is now brought to this place. And they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? What was he preaching? He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And now he's got this opportunity. I hope it gets teed up for you like this, this week, that somebody says to you, can I know about this Jesus and resurrection thing? We're going to bring you to this location. Would you please tell us about King Jesus? I hope you get an opportunity like that. And so Paul is ready to launch into this sermon that begins in verse 22. They say, can we hear about this message? Verse 20, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Okay, so this is what fascinates the Athenians. Oh man, I, I, let's, just, let's get a cup of coffee. Let's discuss philosophy, ideas. Let's argue about stuff. This is how the Athenians are wired. And so they hear, hey, there's this new guy in town. He's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, let's bring him in here. I've never heard about that. Explain this to us, Paul. And I would just say, as you have an ear to culture, as God's Spirit leads you, look for those redeemable aspects of culture that can be used for God's glory. And this is an example here in Athens. These are people who like to hear new ideas. Paul has the newest idea out there. The risen Son of God, the maker of heaven and earth, God with us, the hope of new life. And there's people in our culture today, as, as we have an ear turned to culture, there are people you will, you'll encounter that are very like the Athenians. They're, they're spending their time in nothing besides telling or hearing something new. And unfortunately, some of those people will fall for anything. Or they'll, they'll hold convictions very lightly. And they're able to just look at an idea in a detached way without internalizing it. So there is a challenge to presenting the gospel in a culture like Athens where people are committed to just philosophizing without really internalizing. 
the thing about the good news, the gospel of Jesus, it's more like learning how to swing a golf club. You can't just learn it by watching a YouTube video. You actually have to grab a hold of that club and swing it yourself. There is faith that's required to understand and know Jesus as the king. You can't just intellectually, philosophically contemplate the idea of Jesus' lordship. To say he is Lord means to bow a knee to him and to say you have all authority in my life and in our world. And that's a challenge for the Athenians. But Paul seizes this opportunity now, this redeemable aspect of culture that he finds there in Athens. People who like to hear new ideas. And they're inviting him and they're saying, Paul, come in and explain to us what you're talking about, Jesus and the resurrection. What are the needs that God is putting before you? And he's allowed you to be the one that sees that need and recognizes it. You're walking through a city like Athens, as Paul was. There, there will be things that as you do that in a, in a way that's sensitive to God's spirit leading, your spirit will be provoked. You'll be disturbed. You'll be moved. There will be invitations that come. Hey, could you, what do you mean by that? Could you explain this? When you have an awareness of a need, that's a very good indicator that God is calling you to do something about it. So as you're walking through the city that God has placed you in, as you're walking through your spheres of influence, the context, the neighborhood, the family, the workplace, the school, where God has located you, there will be times that your spirit is provoked. There will be times that there will be an invitation to present truth. Have that ear open to hear the needs that are around you. And make sure you're in God's word with that other ear so that the Holy Spirit can combine those two and use you to present the gospel in a way that's comprehensible to those hearers and in in that context. So now Paul says, all right, I accept that invitation. Let me tell you some truth about Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. This is a great template for sharing your faith with someone that comes from a very different perspective than you. If you're like me, you encounter somebody from a different worldview, a pagan worldview, maybe an atheist, maybe an agnostic, maybe someone who's committed to uh, hedonism, just pursuing pleasure. I feel like going in there with both dukes up, just punching with the gospel. And yet Paul doesn't do that. He he puts his hands down. Instead of taking a step forward, he takes two steps back. The first step back is he finds something to affirm in their belief system. Pretty safe ground. You seem really spiritual. That's great. As I'm walking through your city, I see how you you, you seem to be really drawn to spiritual things. You're very religious. In a sense, he's softening them up. He's, he's uh, putting them at ease. He found something authentic. He's not being manipulative, but he's authentically affirming something in their belief system. That's a great first approach. I'd say a great second approach is to ask a question. Okay? You know, before you get in there with the gospel message, remember you need, you need one ear pointed toward God and his word and one toward the culture. Ask a question. Paul doesn't do that, but he's made observations. He's been in the synagogue, in the marketplace, having these conversations over a period of time, and he's come to understand the culture that God has called him to reach with the good news. So he leads with this affirmation. I I perceive that you're very religious. Now he's building to the good news that he's going to present. Verse 23. As I passed through your city, As I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. And I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Was it just a coincidence that as Paul is walking through this entire city filled with idols, he just happened to, by luck, by fortune, by fate, see this inscription to the unknown God? Do you believe in luck? 
good fortune, or the fates. If you do, those are pagan concepts. There is a creator God. He is sovereign. God is the one ordering our steps for his glory and for his kingdom. And God led Paul to that one inscription. He said, Paul, I want you to notice one of these idols in particular. You're going to need this later. So Paul sees that inscription to the unknown God, and now, in this moment of truth when all eyes are upon him, and he's been invited before all these leaders and philosophers and the idea people within this culture, they're saying, will you tell us the so-called truth that you're espousing? And Paul's got a redeemable aspect of their culture that he says, I can, I can use that to present good news. As I see how religious you are, I've been going through your city, I see all these objects that you're worshiping, he's going to come back to that. Do we worship objects or do we worship the maker of all objects? The one who is person, not object. And Paul's going to come back to that, but he, he just slips that in there. And then he says, there's one inscription that I saw to the unknown God. And they all nod their head. Oh, yeah, yeah, we know that one. I know exactly where that idol is that you're talking about. Yep. Now listen, as he now goes to the truth part of his presentation. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And now he, he goes into really four aspects of the God who to them is unknown. He, he lays out four truths about God that they need to know and understand if they're to accept Jesus, the risen Savior, as king. So first of all, verse 24, he, he's now making known to them the unknown God that they've been worshiping as an object. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He leads with creational monotheism. Okay, you Athenians, you need to know one thing about this unknown God. He made everything, and he's one God. He doesn't need your service, Athenians. He doesn't depend on your worship of him or an idol that you inscribe to, to glorify him and to worship him. He is God, period, whether you worship him or not. And so he, he presents this aspect of God. He is the creator of all. The heavens, which is the dimension that God occupies, and the earth, which is where we live. He's the God of all of that. He doesn't live in temples made by man. And, and again, the implicit message he's saying is, in contrast to all these other created things that you with your hands have made and you're now worshiping, this God is different. He's the maker of all. He's the creator. That's the first point Paul brings to the Athenians. Verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The attribute that Paul is really bringing out here is a big word. It's a 50-cent word. The attribute is God's aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. That just means, uh, Aristotle said it this way, God is the unmoved mover. Okay, there, there is cause and effect, and it, it, when you see anything, any object, you can look before that to find out what was the cause of this effect, what was the cause of that, of that effect that preceded that cause. But eventually you're going to get back to a beginning. And whatever that beginning is to Aristotle, there's something that was not acted upon, but that began, the, the cause, the unmoved mover, Aristotle said. And Paul, Paul is saying that is God. God is the source of all. He, he doesn't depend on anything. He didn't need creation. He chooses to create. And so he's pointing to this aspect of God. There's no cause effect with God. There, there is an element within any philosophical system of faith 
no matter how confidently, no matter how arrogantly someone presents that, the, the most common ones that we encounter in the U.S. of A. today, the 21st century, the religion of science is probably the top one. Or radical human autonomy, probably the number two. So it's this idea that, well, you know, it's cute that you Christians believe in your little fairy tale world, but we scientific, objective people, we just study the facts. But if, if you're aware of this fact that Paul is tapping into an Athens, every philosophical system has some question-begging claims at the beginning, including science. And it's fun if you've studied some philosophy, some ethics, you've had an ear to that culture, but then you have an ear to God and to his word as well. There's some really cool connections that you can make. Oh, oh really? So you're, you believe in this scientific worldview, huh? So when it comes to the, the nature of reality, philosopher living in the U.S. of A. who worships science, What's the building block of life? You call that an atom, right? So that's a, that's a philosophical system that you ascribe to, atomism. Well, in an atom, once you take apart all the quarks and the neutrons and, and the electrons and protons within that, where does consciousness emerge from? Scientific philosopher in the U.S. of A. Where, where, where on that atom is consciousness stored? How many atoms do you have to group together until the ability to think and retain memory and conscious thought, where does that begin? And all of a sudden you start to get down to some of those question-begging claims that begin this idea of science as a religion, really. Paul is doing some of this in Athens. He's, he's getting to the heart of all those idols that the Athenians have worshipped, their desire to hear something new and talk about it all day long. And he's using a creative way inspired by God's spirit with knowledge of his word and an awareness of this culture to bring the gospel to them. Looking for those redeemable aspects of their culture. Hey, Athenians, there is one that you've worshipped as the unknown God. He's the creator of all. There's no cause and effect with him. He is God, not a human construct. And then he brings out another as- the third aspect of God, verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Really, he's emphasizing God's sovereignty. That just means he's the king. How big is his domain? How big is his kingdom? It's all things everywhere. Every nation, every location, Every point in time and history belongs to him. All those boundaries are his. God is sovereign. He orchestrates all things for his good purposes and glory. And then verse 27, the final aspect of this unknown God that they've been worshiping. That they should seek God. Who? Every nation of mankind should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. The aspect of God that he's bringing out here is there is this God, the creator, the one who is sovereign, the one who is not acted upon but is the source of all life. This God reveals himself. And it's not just your quest to find him. But he's not far away, and he's here to reveal himself to you of Athens and of Aurora. And now listen to the technique that Paul uses as he's tapping into their hearts, listening to their culture. He quotes from their own poets. Verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting from Epimenides. This is a poet that they would have known. They they would have recognized this quotation. They would have seen it on Twitter. Or on a bumper sticker. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Quoting from um, Eratus, another poet. But then he taps into, again, a redeemable aspect of their culture. This is not scripture that he's quoting. 
These are poets, philosophers of their time and day. But as he's been walking through Athens with the Holy Spirit leading and that ear open to culture, he, he goes, oh, I can use that. I can use that common thought that exists here to present the truth of Jesus to these people. And now he goes into that truth claim. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Really getting to the heart of that thing that first provoked his spirit when he stepped into Athens. Okay? We, we are not of stone or metal. We are God's offspring. And so let's not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. He's not an image formed. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means that we reflect the king to his creation. Really, really the idea of image of God is very similar to an idol. What does an idol do? An idol of stone represents the God whose name is inscribed on it. Whose name is inscribed on your heart if you are a son of the king, a daughter of King Jesus? Whose name is inscribed on your heart? Whose image do you bear? Whose steps do you walk in? Who are you pointing glory toward? We are called to be living idols of the one true God. Really representations of the king that we serve. And that's what Paul is saying. We are God's offspring. Don't think that this God who is the creator of all things, who is the one that causes everything, who is eternal and sovereign and above all, don't think that he can be represented by a mere piece of stone or an object. He's represented by his followers who bear his image. Verse 30, now the sermon gets more pointed for the Athenians. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There is a call to repentance. This is not just a one more day in Athens of philosophical musing. Paul is calling them to repent, which means turn around. So Athenians, there was a time when you could walk down that path of ignorance and just day by day think about every new idea that you heard. But that day has ended today because I am making known to you the one that you worshipped as the unknown God. And there's a point of decision that comes with that knowledge, with that information. There's an action that you must take in light of this information, repenting and turning around. And, verse 31, because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of all this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Coming judgment, a call to repentance, the risen Savior, all part of Paul's presentation here in Athens. He's gotten the entire gospel message presented in a way that is very clear to the hearers. Using two ears and one mouth, he's still getting to that truth at the end. What's the response in Athens? It's a mixed bag. Just like he saw in Thessalonica and Berea and Lystra in each of the cities that he's been, there are some hearts that are softened to the gospel, others that are still committed to just hearing new concepts without any follow-through. Verse 32, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You know, I, I, the second category, I used to, I used to see that in a, in a very favorable light when they said, we'll hear you again about this. But then I go back and I read the beginning, the Athenians, who just, this, all, this is what they do all day every day. They just hear and tell new, new ideas. I'm not so hopeful for them after I read the, the beginning part in Athens. They could just be saying, hey, let's, let's philosophically in a detached way toss ideas around again next week. And yet there are those who truly believe and they join and they follow both men and women. 
and their hearts are prepared. God is the one who's drawing people to himself, revealing himself, spreading the news of his son and himself. And he uses people like you and I, placed in specific places, contexts. Let's have an ear open to those opportunities that God has put before us. Let's make sure we've got an ear open to him daily so we're not just spreading more ideas for people to contemplate, but we're really walking in the Spirit, proclaiming King Jesus everywhere we go. Why don't we stand together and pray as, as God commissions us and sends us out. We are going to be taking communion together today. And again, this is a time of looking back, looking within, looking forward, looking around the room. We do this together. Let's give thanks to him for his sacrifice. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the group of teenagers and youth leaders that have joined us now. We pray that what you've begun within their hearts, you would cement and seal and continue to grow within them as you call them to be salt and light in this earth. I pray for each person here in this room. We thank you for the opportunities that you've given to us. Thank you for the pagan culture that you've placed us in, that we are the ones that know the one true creator God, the author of all life, the one who is eternal, the one who is unchanging. Thank you that you live within us. God, I pray that you'd give us that creativity that we see Paul having as you led him by your Holy Spirit to Athens. And you, you helped him to see those inscriptions and hear those poems that would be used by you to open up hearts to the good news of Jesus. Help us to recognize those aspects of our culture that are redeemable. Those places where people are asking questions, searching for answers. Help us to be winsome in our presentation of the gospel. Not to offend just because we are offensive, but to allow the truth of the gospel to be what offends. As people are confronted with the reality of coming judgment, with the need to repent, with the need to turn from sin, to receive that gift of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. May that be what causes some to reject and others to join and believe. And not just our lack of awareness of the culture around us, Lord, but help us to walk in the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunities you've placed before us right now. And in the week ahead, I pray that we would be faithful to proclaim good news, to preach Jesus and the resurrection where you've called us to go. And Lord, now as we take communion, we remember and we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.